Hello and welcome to WexCast, the podcast series that dives into the multidisciplinary work of the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University. I'm Denzel Porteous, Director of Marketing Communications at the Wex. In 2012, the Wexner Center embarked on Via Brazil, an ambitious project involving multiple curators and disciplines to bring the contemporary art and culture of Brazil to American audiences. In this WexCast, Director of Film Video, David Philippi, hosts a discussion about the final piece of the project, the first expansive English-language translation of work by the late Brazilian film critic Paulo Emilio Salas Gomes, which will be published in June 2017 by I.B. Taras. An engaging, thoughtful writer, Gomes covered not just the films he saw, but the experience of moviegoing, and his efforts had an enormous impact on the growth of film culture in his native country. The panel was part of a weekend at the WEX devoted to Brazilian cinema, past and present, including screenings of Jean Vigo's Zero for Conduct, Lima Barrieto's O Cangeceiro, the first Brazilian film to be released worldwide, and a screening of the award-winning film Aquarius. Listen to learn more from co-editors of On Brazil and Global Cinema, Meita Condi and Stephanie Dennison. UCLA professor Randall Johnson, Brazilian filmmaker and critic Claybar Mendoza Filejo, director of Aquarius. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome. I'm Dave Philippi, the director of film and video here at the Wexner Center. Uh, it's my great pleasure to welcome everyone to this weekend's uh, first event uh, dedicated to the great Brazilian um, film critic, historian, um, curator, Paulo Emilio Salas Gomez. Uh, early in 2010, the Wexner Center was invited by the Andrew Mellon Foundation to conceive of an ambitious center-wide project that would be grounded in research and education that would expand our collective curatorial breadth in a manner simply not possible with the resources to which we are accustomed. We had certainly presented Brazilian art, film, and music in the center's history, but no one on staff had a deep level of expertise about the country, let alone its art and culture. Instead of thinking of it as an obstacle, we viewed our collective lack as a wonderful opportunity for research and discovery, and so we very humbly embarked on what would become a nearly seven-year initiative to research the contemporary art and culture of Brazil across disciplines and regions, which we um, called Via Brazil. In 2014, my colleagues Jennifer Lang and Bill Horrigan organized a very ambitious exhibition um, entitled Cruzamentos, a survey of contemporary Brazilian art. And at the same time, my colleague Chris Stoltz organized a very thoughtful and impressive series that explored Brazil's rich documentary tradition. The initiative also included a, included a host of visiting filmmakers, screenings, lectures, and performances. And with the publication of On Global Cinema and Brazil by Paulo Emilio Salas Gomez, our nearly seven-year project comes to an end. For my part, I had hoped to organize a series of classic Brazilian films, but in doing preliminary research, the name Paulo Emilio appeared again and again. Um, but with the exception of his study of Jean Vigo and one other article, nothing else appeared in English. We quickly realized that a translation of his work would be a much more meaningful and lasting project. A former Ohio State colleague, uh, Richard Gordon, um, who um, was just about to leave for a new position at Georgia, um, pointed us in the direction of Stephanie Dennison and Maite Conda. And after a few years and hundreds of emails, here we are, and we're, I'm so glad our guests are with us um, today. Before I introduce our panelists, I would like to thank all of my colleagues at the WEX for supporting 
all of the Via Brazil projects with special thanks to our director, Sherry Gelden, Deputy Director uh, Jack Jackson, who's learning more about um, um, academic book publishing contracts than he ever would want to, um, and my film and video colleagues, Chris Stoltz and Jennifer Lang. I'd also like to thank Laura Podolsky and OSU Spanish and Portuguese Department for her counsel during the length of all of our projects. Now it's my great pleasure to um, welcome our distinguished panelists. Um, this is in alphabetical order, not in um, maybe wave. <laughs> um, our, fir our first panelist is Maite Conda. Maite is a university lecturer in Brazilian studies at the University of Cambridge and fellow of Jesus College in Cambridge. Her research focuses on Brazilian culture with a particular emphasis on film and literature. More specifically, more specifically, her work engages with questions concerning the relationship between cinema, literature, and modernity in Brazil. Among her many articles and book chapters, Maite is the author of Consuming Visions, Cinema, Writing, and Modernity in Brazil from 2012, and the forthcoming Foundational Films, Early Cinema, and Modernity in Brazil, um, which is under contract with the University of California Press. She is also the co-editor, as I mentioned, of On Global Cinema in Brazil by Paulo Emilio Salas Gomez, um, which is, um, should be published um, later this year by Ivy Torres. Our second panelist is Stephanie Dennison. Stephanie is professor of Brazilian studies at the University of Leeds in the UK. Her focus is on Brazilian film culture and the broader context of world cinema. Among her many articles and book chapters, she is also the author of Brazilian National Cinema, which she co-authored authored with Lisa Shaw in 2007, and the edited volume Contemporary Hispanic Cinema, Interrogating the Transnational in Spanish and Latin American Film from 2013. And as I mentioned, she's the co-editor of On Global Cinema with Maite. Our next panelist is Randall Johnson. Randall is, the professor, is a professor in the Department of Spanish and Portuguese at UCLA. His research areas include Brazilian film and literature and Latin American cinema, among others. And among his many articles and book chapters are Brazilian cinema, which was co-edited with Robert Stamm in 1995, Black Brazil, Culture, Identity, and Social Mobilization in 1999, and his volume on the great Portuguese director Manuel de, de Oliveira from 2007, part of the University of Illinois' Contemporary Film Directors series. And of course, Randall has long been one of the authorities on Brazilian cinema in the US. Finally, we're joined by Kleber Mendonça Fio. Kleber is one of the most exciting directors working in international cinema today. He began his career as a film critic, journalist, and curator, and began his move into filmmaking in the 1990s. Along with a series of short films, he directed the documentary Critico about the relationship between filmmaking and criticism in 2008. His first feature, Neighboring Sounds from 2012, is one of the best films of the past 10 years, winning numerous awards and appearing on many top 10 lists in the year of its release, and we were honored to host Kleber uh, for a screening back in 2012. Kleber's latest, Aquarius, stars the great Sonia Braga in, again, one of the best films of the past year, and it represents one of the most fully realized roles and performances by an actress in recent memory. It screens Saturday at the WEX, and I hope you'll um, join us back here at 7 o'clock on, on Saturday. We're especially excited to have Kleber um, back at the Wexner Center this weekend, because if anyone carries on the spirit of Paulo Emilio, it's Kleber. Please join me in welcoming our distinguished panel.
Right, um, I'm going to um, start the ball rolling then. Um, what we thought we might do, um, each of us is going to speak a little bit um, either about the book project or about the legacy of Paolo uh, Emilio Salis Gomes. Um, and uh, uh, myself and Maite will talk a little bit in a little bit more detail about some of the aspects of this particular project that we find really enriching for our own research. Um, okay, so the genesis of the book. Um, actually, before I do anything else, I must say an absolutely huge thank you to Dave um, and to the Wexner Centre for the Arts for having this opportunity, for giving us this opportunity to translate um, and edit and produce a book um, of, of Paolo Mino's work for the first time. Um, Dave has been absolutely incredible the whole way through this process. And it's, it's wonderful, especially for an academic coming from the UK, where we're used to absolutely zero um, resources at our, at our um, disposal to be able to uh, contract translators. For the first time, we didn't have to do our own translating, which was an absolute luxury for us. Um, and to be able to... Um, contract a copy editor, not, not having to do our own copy editing. This is just amazing, absolute luxury. Um, we used to refer to Dave, we have sent an awful lot of emails back, backwards and forwards. We call him our sugar daddy, um, because he's just been incredibly generous, and obviously it's Mellon, Mellon, Mellon Foundation needs to be thanked as well for that. Um, so, we, um, as Dave said, he got in touch. Um, my own interest in, in this particular project comes from uh, the fact that I'm very interested in particular in um, popular cinema. Um, uh, but my background is Brazilian cultural history. Um, and so even before I started doing any research on, on uh, film, I already knew the name Paulo Milho uh, because he was someone who uh, was very influential beyond film circles. In other words, he had plenty to say that was of interest to anyone who was interested in Brazilian culture and understanding how what, what makes Brazilian culture particularly um, an interesting and what makes the country tick, if you like. Um, so I was very keen to get involved. I've done translation work, as I said before. Um, and so what we did, Maite and I um, consulted archives. We had a look at what was already published collect together in terms of um, Paulo Milho's work, and we're talking about an awful lot. There's a very large body of work um, that we had to work our way through. He's about 400 essays um, that, that he produced while he was alive, um, in, as well as books. So it was quite a quite substantial piece of work involved in just simply reading through the essays, and actually very interesting as well, um, because there are only so many that we would have come across in our, in our own reading and our own research. Um, and then we had to think a little bit about um, how we were going to put the book together. And the reason why we thought it was really interesting to publish um, these essays, what's particularly striking is the fact that Paulo Milho has a lot to say, not just about Brazilian cinema, but about film culture, generally speaking. Um, so that, that was important, too, that we, that we made sure that the, the, um, the book included essays that speak to um, other interests beyond Brazilian cinema. Could I have my slides up, please? Could you swap them over? Because I have a little, I have a PowerPoint, but... Um... Just to add, there is a, a kind of burden of responsibility that when you have a critic from certain countries not Anglo, that aren't Anglophone, there's an expectation that they can only speak about their own country. And so it was really important for us to show that this is someone, this was a film critic, not just a critic of Brazilian cinema. Um, and so there are sections in the book on Hollywood, on French cinema, on Soviet cinema, um, which he was a big fan of, of Italian cinema, and, and just cinema in general. 
Um, and, and that was really kind of fundamental for us to kind of, to, to make sure that people knew that this is a film critic who happens to be Brazilian. Um, yes, absolutely. Um, uh, I've included just a, a very briefly on the slide that you can see um, how, how the book is actually divided up. I put my glasses on, I can remind myself. Uh, so it's divided into three parts. So you'll see that only, it's only actually part three uh, that, that deals with the essays about Brazilian cinema. Um, and those themselves are divided into, um, so we have a mixture of um, close film analyses, but also essays that talk about the, the, the wider film culture um, context. Um, because Paulo Milo wasn't just a film critic, um, he was a, a, obviously a university teacher as well, um, and someone who um, took the, the, the issue of archiving um, and film memory particularly seriously. Um, so responsible for setting up um, the, the Brazilian Cinematheque, for example, bringing knowledge um, from uh, his contact in, in Paris with Henri uh, Langlois, that's right, isn't it? Um, so the, the French Cinematheque, modelling it very much on, 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 on the French Cinematheque. Um, so we wanted to include essays that, that, that uh, give, would give people a sense of what he had to say about the subject of the need, for example, for archiving material. Okay, and obviously those, those essays tend to be very critical, mm. uh, very critical of the lack of ambition on the part of um, Brazilian authorities to actually want to preserve the memory of film. Um, so, that, that, so that's included there too. Um, so the way that, as I say, the way that we've divided it up, the first part then, social and cinematic engagements, will, will include, this was the part that, that Maite looked at specifically. Yeah, this is um, one of the things that became um, quite patent really early on. Um, Stephanie mentioned that what we did was go through archives and, and look at his essays. We also spoke to people who knew Paulo Emilio, who'd been his students or friends. He set up a film club, um, and so we, we spoke to kind of members of the film club that, um, that knew him. And one of the things that came through really, really strongly um, immediately was how political he was. Um, and, and that's part one that we wanted to show um, some of his writings about politics. Um, he was part of something called the Klima Generation, which, in, which changed kind of social and cultural analysis in Brazil quite dramatically. Um, and so we have some of the manifestos that he was responsible for drawing up, which talk about a need to be um, politically and socially engaged, or if not a need to be, the fact that things cannot be separated from um, society, politics, and ideology. Um, so that's how we begin the, the collection. Um, and there's a, an essay in there as well which talks about how film is part of that, that film is not something separate from the social, political, and ideological context. Um, so that was kind of something that was really, really strong from talking to people about him um, that we discovered. Yeah, I'll just move that on. I think I've got the, the epigraph that, uh, that, that starts the book off. You can see there, um, talking about criticism, what, what makes for good film criticism. So it's uh, criticism that deepens our interest in individual films, reveals new meanings and perspectives, expands our sense of the medium, confronts our assumptions about value and sharpens our capacity to discriminate. Um, and I think that's very, very clearly evidenced in the, in the essays that we've gathered together in this, this particular collection. Uh, all those, if you like, are all ticked, have a massive tick beside them in, ter in terms of, uh, of what Paulo Milo was doing with, with these essays that he was publishing, either in newspapers uh, or specialist magazines in some cases, um, but very much the, the idea that the, um, the critic, uh, the film critic, um, 
has a responsibility, a very clear responsibility, um, to know what's going on um, within the uh, film industry as well, not just someone who gives his opinion on a particular film. So there's so much more to it than that. So it's very, that, I think that's something that's come out very, very clearly in the, in the essays that, that, that have ended up being included. Um, I should mention also, um, we had a fantastic translator. It's actually very, very difficult translating an, um, uh, these kinds of essays. It's a tough job. Um, so Amber Rose McCartney, American translator, um, did an excellent job. She was a student of mine at the University of Leeds, where we have a wonderful uh, translation master's programme, clearly, um, <laughs> which, I, which I no longer teach on, which is why it's wonderful. Um, and she did do an extremely good job. Um, and you'll see, we have a couple of, um, if anyone wants to take a look at the book and see, have a, have a closer look and see what's going to be included in it when it does come out, um, you'll see that what we've tried to do is keep footnotes to an absolute minimum, but those are in there. So the footnotes we, we would have, we're, we're including would be just to explain a little bit of context, perhaps for people who don't have uh, a specialist knowledge of Brazil, it could be, or what kinds of films were the, the, the context of the films that he was talking about. Um, some of the essays, we actually translated a lot more. Um, there are 39 essays included in the volume, and I think we translated something like 50. Yeah. Uh, so some of them we selected, when we read them in Portuguese, we thought these are going to work, and actually by the time they were translated we realised there was something either lacking or they just weren't fitting with the collection as we had it, as we, as we put it together. Um, so it quite quickly developed into the, the previous slide, those, those particular divisions, so we wanted something that was very clearly talking about national cinema, for example, and the wider picture, um, uh, or close filmic analyses. So some of the essays, some of them, some of them were slightly incomplete. Um, some of them actually weren't saying very much by the time we, we came to translate them. So we're, we're you know, we're, uh, there are limitations as well. You know, this is a great writer, um, but it was our job also to think a little bit about what's going to work. For, for an English reading I think, um, um, public. Re yeah, related to that, there's um, doing a project like this, you're literally bringing someone, not just works, um, but you're bringing a person into representation, which is a huge responsibility. But the other thing you're doing as well is, um, is hopefully making people think about um, theory and criticism. Um, we have a particular idea of what theory and criticism is, um, which and if you read Paolo Emilio's essays, they're very different. Um, it's very per a personal style, um, which actually, actually challenge you, challenges you to rethink what theory is. Um, because as theory in different places emerges in kind of different formats or has different styles. Um, so those are kind of two key things. One is bringing Paolo Emilio into representation, but also um, hopefully making people rethink what theory is so that they can think about how it's manifested in different um, places. Yeah, just move that slide on. Um, by the end of the project, what really stood out for me, so when people ask me, well, what, 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 why, why is this an important um, contribution um, to uh, film studies, broadly speaking? What, what, why, why is it important that this material has been tra translated? And I think for me, what stands out is that Paolo Milo is someone that I would now very closely identify with film culture. So it's not just film, but actually everything else that comes with that. Uh, and considering that he was writing 
about film from the 1940s onwards. He was actually very much ahead of the game in that respect, I would argue. Um, so if we're thinking just a little bit about the kinds of things that, that we have included in the book, the kinds of things that he does, it's much more than just simple film analysis. Reading of star texts, for example, which is something that's very much um, in vogue in academic circles. I, I, I have published on stars myself. It's something that I'm particularly interested in. Um, but really, it was only from the 19, 1970s, 1980s onwards that, uh, that academic criticism started to um, think about deconstructing the star. So star text, as in you know, the, the public persona attached to a star, for example. Um, and Paolo Emilio was doing that in 1957. Um, have I got just the next one? Yeah. Um, so, for example, we've included um, in, the, in the volume uh, a piece that he wrote on Fantasia. So, ostensibly, it's, a, it's his um, review. Ostensibly, it's a review of Fantasia. Um, but, what, um, but what he's actually doing is talking, uh, talking quite a lot about the star himself, so Walt Disney himself. Uh, and the same happens um, with Orson Welles. Okay? So someone like Orson Welles, um, and, and in particular his, uh, his relationship with... Um, talks goes into some detail about his relationship with alcohol. Uh, <laughs> but on, on, in the case of both of these um, stars, if you like, star directors, um, he, he's also... Um, what's interesting is he's talking about um, uh, their films very clearly from the perspective of someone who's viewing these films in Brazil, which I think is very interesting as well. Um, and the audience is incredibly important in so many of the essays that, that have ended up in the, in, the, in the volume. And his students. He often refers to his students and how he learns from, and he'll mention his students by name. Um, so... so the, 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 the viewer of films is, is particularly important, the audience. And there's one particular essay where he talks about a generation of, of um, cinephiles and, and how he's learnt from them. So. Yeah. And their knowledge of, um, that they bring from popular culture that he perhaps wouldn't have as mm. well. So their knowledge of TV uh, viewing is included too. Um, and then there's one, I think, probably my, my, my favourite, one of the, 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 the essays that we've included that, that's um, particularly interesting for me um, is one called Mythology and Truth. So this was published in the 1950s, 1957, I think, um, where he's, it really is, if you look at it and you read it, you'll see that he really is way ahead of, way ahead of his time in terms of understanding how stars are created and what they actually mean, and, and in particular, uh, the uh, racial and ethnic dimensions as well, which I find fascinating. So when he talks about Hollywood and how star Hollywood creates stars, it's interesting that he's chosen two stars who are representing uh, an American other, and he actually uses those terms. This is 1957. I think that's pretty amazing. Um, I had never heard of Theda Barra, I have to confess. I had to go away and, and look her up. Um, and she's from Ohio, I discovered. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Um, but she was very much marketed as um, exotic uh, daughter of an Arabian prince born under the shadows of the, of the pyramids in Egypt. Um, she, she's a girl from Ohio. Um, <laughs> and the contrast that he sets up in this particular essay with um, Valentino uh, and his exotic otherness, and what he argues is that the, the male, because of the times and the shifting of the times, um, men were quite happy, and women, obviously, were quite happy to identify with this exotic masculine other as represented by um, Valentino, but they weren't quite ready 
for Theda Bader, which is why she disappeared after only making a handful of films. And he argues that there was too much disconnect between um, the, the person, so the star, and the persona that they were trying to encapsulate. People didn't believe that she was who she was pretending to be, in other words, but they believed it was Valentino. I haven't explained that particularly well, but the essay does that, does it very well indeed. Um, and as I say, it's just, this is one of the most interesting, one of the most striking um, uh, essays for me. Do you want to talk <coughs> a little bit about, okay? You want me to just carry on? Right, okay. Um, uh, so, Paulo Milo, uh, for those who, who don't read Portuguese, um, he's probably best known for um, writing uh, an essay, uh, which was published in 1973, is that right? 1973, first published in 1973, I think, um, where he, he basically, the, the title is Trajectories in Underdevelopment, is that right, Randall? You translated this many years ago Part as well. Part of co-translation. You co-translated it, that's the right title, is it? Yeah, okay. Um, uh, and this is, this is perhaps what he's best known for. So the argument that he makes, and this is, I think, the, the most um, well-known quote from Paulo Milho, in English anyway, is this one. So we're neither, this is talking about Brazilians and Brazilian filmmaking in particular, we're neither Europeans nor North Americans, lacking an original culture. Nothing is foreign to us because everything is, okay? Um, and I've also included just another little um, snippet from something else there, um, because these are kind of like the two key pillars that he has understood um, to, to, to sit on, his, his theory, if you like. And the other one is, um, the products dumped on us by the foreign film industry do not actually communicate with us since communication involves the concept of dialogue. So the context then for the first, if you like, was very much... Um, broadly speaking, theories of underdevelopment in the sense that uh, Brazil um, is simply incapable um, of producing anything. So, so it's very much, everything is very much couched in terms of lacking, okay? Um, so it's not, so it's very, uh, the idea being that you go, can't go looking for an original culture. Um, so, and also the sense that uh, in Brazil, um, we're not actually very good at copying either. The creative incapacity for copying is another very well-known quotation um, uh, by Paulo Milho. So it's very much this, this sense that um, we're constantly, our Brazilians are constantly somehow trying to catch up or simply cannot necessarily compete. Um, and one of the problems, of course, and again, the context here is the sense of complete domination of the of the um, of film viewing spaces by Hollywood, which you'll see in, in the second uh, quotation there, and the, the idea being uh, that these are this is somehow um, an alien culture that's being forced upon us, and we cannot interact with it um, because it's not proper communication because communication is a two-way thing, um, and the reason why I've included those two um, is because. And this is me segueing into my little bit on um, on popular cinema. This was incredibly very some very influential ideas here because Paulo Emilio was one of the first um, critics and probably one of very few critics at the time who was prepared to talk about and write about um, popular cinema. Okay, so popular cinema as in commercial cinema. Okay, commercially successful films. Right. Because um, most others would not necessarily have included those kinds of films within the canon. Um, so this is again something a really important legacy that he has left. I think in, the, in that the, the Brazilian film canon um, has space within it 
for popular, popularly inflected films, if you will. Um, so, have I got a photograph? Oh, yes, I've got an image here from um, Shan Shada. This is, which one's that? That looks like Matao Mohe, I think. Okay. No, it's Kohe, no, yeah. Matao <laughs> Mohe is the high noon. Yeah, so this is the, the parody, the parody, if you like. Um, and he has a fast, some really fascinating observations to make on the Shanshada. Um, and, and what really grabbed him in particular was sitting, watching these films with a popular audience and seeing how the audience were reacting to the, to the images and the signs on screen. Uh, so that would have been a very different experience from perhaps watching a, a, a more polished um, American comedy. Okay? Uh, so it's very much the sense that uh, when we talk about films, we need to be talking about the experience of watching the films and the audience and taking the audience seriously and taking the audience's tastes seriously. Um, so this is something I think that's quite important, isn't it? Um, and through talking about, through writing about these films and through opening up the possibility of being able to write about them, it means that an off some of these, the, the, the interesting theories that he developed and that others have used to develop theories further come back to that, um, means that we can then um, look at other types of popular film and think exactly the same thing. Um, so if we're talking, we were talking uh, recent, about half an hour ago, we were talking about the new, very popular films that are, that are um, uh, getting massive audiences in Brazil, uh, very, very unlikely that those would be spoken of, for example, uh, in the newspapers quite as frequently as perhaps other films. But the possibility is there to actually discuss them and to want to discuss them. Why do, why do people want, why do 8 million people want to go and see, what was the name of the film? Uh, Mia, Mia Right, okay. Mia, my Elma. Uma Bessa. So she's a, my mother's a piece of work, so we decided was how we were going to translate that. So, so, so again, this very popular uh, global uh, television or global media corporation productions. Um, that you won't get to necessarily read about those detailed um, reviews. Um, but if we think about what Paolo Emilio opened up, there's no reason why we shouldn't. There's no reason why we couldn't actually extrapolate something interesting about the socio-political context, for example, um, uh, uh, of filmmaking in Brazil by looking at these kinds of films. Um, and uh, uh, another popular uh, performer who was pretty much ignored um, by critics, uh, film reviewers, by academics when he was making films, Amasu Masarotmi. I think Paolo Emilio, again, was one of the very few who actually took time out to write about his work and his films. And he had a quite a lot, to, again, very interesting things to say about um, Masarotmi, uh, which we can apply when we then look at other, uh, whether it's films or soap operas or whatever it might be, um, and he was trying to understand what is it that people actually like about this, this particular comic performer. But that the and critics this, hate. Yes, yes. The I critics. think the, the title in, in the collection is The Man Who the Critics Hate. Yes, that's right. Um, yeah. So he recognised that he was going against the grain, if you like. Uh, so the quotation is, he touches the archaic root of Brazilian society in each one of us. And this is something that I find, there's an idea that I find particularly useful, even when I then think about, well, why were other films... Uh, softcore porn films, the porn of Shadows, for example, in the 1970s. Uh, why, why did they, what was it about those films? Was it just because they were softcore porn? Or was there something else to it? Was there, was there, uh, and, other, and other films uh, that are episodic in nature. So, for example, uh, uh, The Trapalhões, another very popular 
Uh, so it's nice to see you nodding in the audience. This is great. You recognise all these names. You've seen all these films. Uh, that's a fantastic image. Um, uh, what was it? Why did people want to keep going back to see 20-odd films produced by these uh, Brazil's version of the Three Stooges, except there's four of them. There were four of them. Uh, so what was it about them? What, what was it? Was it that familiarity, which is exactly, of course, what what um, Paulo Amido was was arguing, and the really important experience of going to see them with a group of people. So that kind of community film viewing experience, queuing up uh, films were released on the same day every year, that kind of familiarity and that, that, that uh, routine, if you like, and the community spirit is very important. Okay. Would you like to? Mm. Yeah. I'll probably um, take up what Stephanie was saying about, um, well, Paolo Emilio kind of reclaiming or taking popular culture seriously. Um, like Ostrapagnois, the Chanchada, is, is really kind of a concern with uh, thinking about film history. And, and for me, the, um, in terms of my work, that's where he's really, really kind of important. He's um, someone who really, really put um, Brazil's film history on the map and went back and, and tried to kind of think about it and archive it um, properly. And this was part of his work with the Cinemateca, but also part of his own work um, as, a, as a critic and a scholar. Um, but sitting down to think about how he, he does this, though, it's really difficult. I mean, I mentioned how <coughs> socially and politically engaged he was, um, and it's impossible, to really, to kind of extricate his work on Brazilian film history from that kind of social and political um, history. His, his work on kind of tracing a film genealogy for Brazil um, was part of this intrinsic belief that film was part of the um, political, the ideological, and the social landscape which it not only kind of represented, but actually could, could change. Um, and this is all part of a, a spirit, really, that emerged in the 1950s in Brazil, that film had an important role to play in, in society. Um, and all of this kind of guided him. And this actually took root, I think, from when he was growing up. He was born in Sao Paulo in 1916 and, and grew up in, in a city that um, was quite exciting. Um, and, and very kind of culturally vibrant. Um, any Brazilians will know, um, São Paulo in the 1920s was home to modernismo. Um, and, and he was actually part of this, um, not part of the movement, but very much linked to what was going on. Um, in, just in 1933, he'd um, only just finished secondary school, and he became the editor of a journal called Movimento, which had um, important writers and artists um, Someone, an artist, Anita Malfatti, was, was collaborating with him, Mario D'Andraggi as well. Um, he also collaborated with Osvaldi D'Andraggi, who um, wrote the Cannibalist Manifesto, and, and they became close friends. He called Osvaldi his mestri, um, and he was his mestri not just kind of culturally and artistically, but also politically. Um, and this really is where his politics kind of um, took root. He joined the Alliance for Freedom, in, in the 1930s, which fought against imperialism and fascism that was growing, um, not just in Europe, but also in Brazil. And because of that, he became imprisoned. So he was imprisoned in 1935, spent um, 14 months in a prison called, ironically, Paraíso, um, Paradise. And um, after 14, or during the 14 months, he managed to convince the, um, I think it was 11 um, co-prisoners to, to dig a tunnel so they dug a tunnel um, and escaped from prison and ended up in a rich woman's garden. Um, 
And from there, he escaped to, to Paris. He was the youngest person in exile. This was during, during the dictatorship of Getulio Vargas. Um, and it's in Paris. He, he'd had no interest in film before he arrived in Paris. It's only in Paris that he actually, actually really, really got into film. Um, Stephanie mentioned how he, um, you mentioned Henri Langlois, um, the Cinematheque. Um, Mm -hmm, thank you. Um, and Georges Franjou. Um, so Paris is quite, in, uh, in the kind of 30s and 40s, was an exciting place to be in terms of film. Um, there were film clubs that were disseminating kind of new ideas about movies. Um, they were showing kind of art, art house movies, and there were, um, there were these film clubs. And, and he became kind of intimately involved with that, became friends with Langlois. So when he returned to Brazil, he decided to kind of replicate that spirit or uh, try to replicate what he'd um, found in um, Paris. And he set up his own Clube de Cinema film club, which screened movies initially in his own house. Um, and friends used to go, and then it became a, a bigger thing, and then it moved um, to a larger site. Um, that initiative was part of a generation which was foundational, which I've mentioned, which was the Klima generation that he was part of, along with um, huge intellectuals like Antonio Candido and Gilda Gimelo Sosa. Um, this group really kind of started to think about Brazil's cultural history and, and how it emerged, um, and tried to kind of reclaim this spirit of investigation that the 1920s modernist writers um, had kind of endeavoured to do as well. And it's in part of Klima that he starts to write about film. Um, so it's, it's, it's crucial, that kind of it's They had their own magazine, and it's in the magazine that he starts to write reviews. And initially, they're reviews for, for foreign films, particularly Hollywood films, some of which we've included. Um, so like John Ford's Long Journey Home is in there. Citizen Kane, as well, he wrote um, about for Klima. Um, and what he does initially is pay close attention to cinematography, um, camera angles, montage, mise-en-scene. Um, and it's this moment that those words actually enter into the Brazilian um, vernacular, into Brazilian vocabularies. So he's not the first person who'd written, who had written about film in Brazil before, but he's the first one who really takes care and um, pays attention to, to film language, um, which hadn't been done before. Um, critics in Brazil had generally just recounted narratives, film narratives. Um, so Paulo Emilio is the first one that really, really looks at um, cinematography. And wanting to do this really seriously, he actually returns to Paris and um, studies film properly. And it's there that he wrote the Jean Vigo book that Dave mentioned, um, which was a huge success. Um, um, André Brazin praised the book, um, saying that it was an exemplary work about an author. Um, so right from the beginning, um, Paolo Milo is engaged with film theory that was emerging in France, so uh, the, the author film, film theory. Um, the one thing that you get from, and we've included a, a chap, uh, an extract of the book um, mm -hmm. about the film Zero de Conduit. No, yes, that's right, Zero de Conduit, which was screened tomorrow here at 5 p.m. Um, one of the things, reading his book about um, Jean Vigo is that he's not just interested in, in the director's work, but also his background, his engagement with anarchist politics, um, and, and also his poetic realism. 
So you start to see in that book, it's this first kind of serious um, study of, of film, and you start to see how what interests him is how film engages with politics, um, which it becomes really, really in, in, important. Uh, just when the book's published, he returns back to, um, he returns to Brazil and heads up what, become, what is the Cinemateca Brasileira in 1954. Um, from being in, in Paris, he becomes aware that having a film archive is going to be fundamental if we're to study film seriously as an art form. Um, so he begins to systematically um, organize the field of film studies, and he's the first person in Brazil to actually put film as, an, as a subject of study on the map. Um, he initiates that in the Cinemateca, um, but also in academic circles, initially at the University of Brasilia, where he teaches in the 1960s, and then um, from the late 1960s at USP, and he's um, central for creating what becomes ECA, which, um, if any of you know, Ismael Xavier is there, was his student. It's, it's, the kind of serious place to study film. Um, right, his, what he does is not just study um, film in general at um, university, but particularly Brazilian cinema. Um, so he argues that Brazilian cinema has its own history that has to be uh, engaged with and, and known. Um, so it becomes a proper subject of inquiry. Um, and alongside this, he's the first person to organize retrospectives about Brazilian cinema as well. Um, so Brazilian cinema has to be taken seriously um, at, across the board. Um, so Cinema Novo, from Cinema Novo to the Chanchadas, um, we have to know our film history. Um, and he also starts to publish some of the first historical studies on Brazilian cinema, um, initiating kind of new methods and techniques for knowing a national film culture. Um, he writes the first panorama of Brazilian cinema, which charts the production of Brazilian cinema right from the beginning, from 1896, just six months after the medium is commercially introduced in Paris. And he goes back and does archival work to see what's happening in the 1890s in Brazil in terms of film and who's making film. Um, and, and what that does is not just put domestic film on the map, so to speak, but it proves that far from a foreign product, um, film actually is um, something that Brazilians are producing. Um, and that it has deep roots in the country's history and that it develops alongside and in tandem in dialogue with the country's history um, and its social and political landscape. So he really gives rise to a new national film consciousness in Brazil, um, one that's focused on the ideological effects of the condition of the country. And this comes through clearly, um, not just in his 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 book publishing, but also in his magazines for a magaz uh, his work for a magazine called Brasil Urgente, and also for the literary supplement of Estado de São Paulo, which actually became obligatory reading. Um, I interviewed lots of people when I was in São Paulo, and we were looking um, for essays, and a lot of them said that they would rush and get uh, Estado de São Paulo for the literary supplement for Paulo Emilio's uh, criti criti critiques of film um, that everyone would then talk about. Right, what's, what's interesting when we, when we kind of charted the book is how his early work for Klima magazine on film, which were about film um, aesthetics, how this changes and what happens in the 60s is he starts to talk about ideology. Um, so there's a new form of critique and very kind of um, aware of 
how film is a political um, product as well. But that all goes hand in hand with what's happening in the cinematic landscape <coughs> in the 60s, which is the emergence of a new generation of filmmakers um, who were like the modernists, the writers in the 1920s and 30s, and this is cinema novel um, in the 1960s. And these were filmmakers who sought to kind of create new radical political aesthetics um, within film that broke with Hollywood and Hollywood's conventions of filmmaking. Um, and that goes hand in hand with the belief that film can actually create a new society. Now, Paolo Milio was hugely important for, for Cinema Novel. Carlos Diegues talks about before and after um, Paolo Milio's panorama and how important that was for Cinema, for cinema Novel. Um, he here um, is his work on unearthing a kind of national film history. And, and part of that is a foundational essay that we've included in the book, which is an essay about silent cinema in Brazil and um, silent documentaries. And he writes that in 1974. It's at a time when no one, not just in Brazil, but actually internationally, is really thinking about silent cinema. And he goes back and unearths silent films in Brazil and documentary traditions. Um, and um, what he, he finds are a, a rich tradition, particularly in newsreels, um, and they're newsreels that do two things, he says. One is that they document the country's topography, its mountains, its flora, um, what he calls the splendid cradle. Um, and the others are politics, movies that report on scenes of politicians, m military parades. And all of these movies, he says, try to create and project a sense of national identity. So from the beginning, Brazilian cinema, from its very birth, um, when filmmakers are making movies in Brazil, are creating a national cinema. Um, it's not just born with cinema novel, he says. Um, and, and what you see from the essay is how he shows that the local and the political go hand in hand from the very beginning in Brazil cinema, um, which aims to show kind of national politics to, to people. Um, right, that doesn't detract from individual artistry. Um, at around the same time, he publishes a study of a filmmaker who was very, very important for um, cinema novel. And that's Humberto Mauro. Um, and what he does is, um, while the cinema novistas are talking about um, Mauro's kind of documentaries um, made in the 1950s, he actually goes back and looks at Mauro's early silent movies. Um, which are made in the kind of Hollywood guise. Um, and he, he does a kind of book-length study of these early, early years of Humberto Mauro's filmmaking and, and looks as well at the off-screen culture, fanzines that Mauro was like linked to. There's a fanzine that was very, very important for Mauro, which was called Cineartio Film Art. Um, so this keys into what Stephanie was saying and how he, he really takes what happens off-screen um, the kind of reception of films very seriously, and also how he's interested in <coughs> commercial films, not just kind of art house movies. Um, and part of what he does as well in that study is draw attention to the question of race, which you mentioned as well. Um, and he's one of the first people to really look at and, and uh, consider seriously the question of race, or more correctly, how Brazilian cinema tries to whitewash itself from the beginning. Um, and so, and um, 
so what he does, therefore, is, is recognise that these films that Mauro made, even if they're kind of like Hollywood films, they're actually very much um, integrated in local concerns and local issues, like race and gender. Um, and in that sense, he looks at how these films actually negotiated all the creative incapacity to copy kind of foreign films that Steph mentioned, um, which has underpinned um, what he thinks Brazilian cinema is. And this is central to that uh, seminal essay which Randall and, and Bob Stamp translated, The Trajectory with un Underdevelopment. Um, so for, for Paulo Emilio, he recognizes that Brazilian cinema is a hybrid in, in many ways. Um, right, that hybridity is something that we found that's at play in Paulo Emilio's own work, um, in the sense that he comes to Brazilian cinema from his love of US and Hollywood films and European cinema, um, and it's how he kind of really discovers Brazilian cinema as well. Um, so um, that kind of hybridity is part of the book. In the, how Steph mentioned how it was really important for us to, to show that this is someone who didn't just know Brazilian cinema and Brazilian film culture, but was intrinsically linked also to um, foreign film culture, um, French film culture, and Italian film culture and Soviet film culture that he wrote about. Um, and this is what we kind of hopefully have done in the book. Um, okay, I pass now to Randall. Well, thank you. I'd like to also begin by thanking David and the Western Center for the invitation to come here. It's a pleasure to be uh, back in Columbus. I haven't been here for a good number of years. Uh, and to be share the stage with Maite, Stephanie, and, and Kleber, whose films I really like. So come see Aquarius uh, tomorrow night. Uh, I'd like to be, begin on kind of a personal note, because I had the opportunity, the honor, indeed, to meet Paulo Emilio uh, in 1975. Uh, he passed away two years later in 1977. I was a doctoral student in Luso-Brazilian literature at the University of, of Texas, and I went to Sao Paulo to undertake research for my dissertation on Joaquim Pedro de Andrade's adaptation of uh, Makunaima, the, the modernist novel by Mari Chandraj. I didn't know many people in Sao Paulo, and for reasons I don't recall, Paulo Emili became my initial contact person uh, at the university, uh, where I actually carried out a shot-by-shot -shot analysis of Joaquin Pedro's film on a moviola or editing machine there. Uh, I remember one moment of the first day very clearly. Uh, as we were walking toward the building that housed the, the School of Communication Arts, or, or ECA, uh, Paulo Emilio said, some people will think you're with the CIA, but don't pay any attention to them. Uh, he was correct, I think, on both counts. 1975 was a very difficult year in the, in the dictatorship. It was a year, some of you may recall, the journalist Vladimir Herzog and uh, a worker uh, Manuel Fielfilio were both assassinated by uh, the police, in prison, by the way, in jail. Uh, but he was right, and some people apparently did have suspicions about my presence there, uh, but he was also right because it, in the long run it didn't matter, and uh, yeah, I'd made numerous contacts and, and friends in the film community uh, in Sao Paulo. During my months-long stay, I think it was a year and a half in, in Sao Paulo, in Brazil, I had somewhat irregular contact with Paulo Emilio. I remember that one day he took me to visit the Cinemateca Brasileira, which was then housed in, the, in Ibirapuera Park. Um, 
On another, he invited me to lunch in his apartment where I met uh, his wife, writer Ligia Fagundistelis. My impression of him then and now, 41 years after I met him and 39 since his death, is of a very kind, gentle, generous, and intellectually rigorous person who had an immense influence on those with whom he came into contact. A few years later, a couple years later, Robert Stam and I dedicated Brazilian cinema to Paulo Emilio. We worked on this in 1977-78, I believe, uh, using a photograph of him holding a can of film uh, with the following words. Dedicated to Paulo Emilio Sales Gomes, 1916-1977, for all he has done to preserve Brazilian cinematic memory. Even though the book was published five years after his death, we deliberately chose to use the present perfect, all he has done, because his initiatives, example, and intellectual influence continued long after his uh, untimely passing. Uh, as Mike and Stephanie have already described, Paulo Emilio's impact in Brazil is at once intellectual, institutional, and pers personal. And I believe that the essays collected in the volume are representative of many of his intellectual concerns, including, uh, as they mentioned, some of his key political reflections from the 1940s, as well as selection of film, film, criticism, uh, film criticism or essays on film-related uh, topics. Uh, to understand, to begin to understand Paulo Emilio's trajectory, profile, and legacy, one might think of the subtitle of a collection of his articles published two decades ago in Sao Paulo. And it is Un Intellectual na Linha de French, an intellectual on the front lines. Uh, Paulo, Paulo Emilio's political engagement began very early, at a very early age, which was why he was arrested in 1935, uh, at the age of what, 19, 18, yeah, 19? 19. Uh, he was very much involved in politics with a, an association with a, a communist youth organization and then with the Alianza Nacional Libertadora in, in 1935, which attempted a, a, a coup against the, the Vargas regime. Uh, he was also a very precocious intellectual, as, as Maite had mentioned. Maite mentioned a, a publication uh, called Movimento that included some major intellectual figures in, in, in Sao Paulo. What she doesn't mention, I think, is very interesting and very typical of, of Paulo Emilio is that he didn't have enough material to put out the, the, the paper, the publication, so he invented a number of pseudonyms and wrote material himself, uh, including a poem uh, which deals with a worker who's exploited in a, a certain company, company that happened to belong to his own family. So he was critical of his own family in a very kind of militant kind of, uh, leftist political uh, perspective. Uh, what I'd like to do uh, he lost interest in that, so that didn't last uh, very long. Uh, what I'd like to do today, do very briefly, is uh, just talk about very, talk about a couple of things in terms of his his impact. Uh, I think first, and, and they have both mentioned this, the fact that he was a very important public intellectual, and you see this in his early publications. You see this in his engagement with the the Klima Group uh, in 1941. You see it in, in speeches he would give before poli in political rallies, uh, some of which got him into, into trouble. Uh, but it's a, it's a characteristic that followed him throughout his life. He was also always a very, very public figure. 
By the way, personally speaking, he was very tall, had a booming voice. I know he would be a wonderful speaker at political rallies. Uh, perhaps we could use him today, uh, but that's a different issue. Uh, and so that's, he was always a public figure, always defending uh, his positions, that always based kind of an ethical uh, positioning and, and a concern with social justice, a, current, a concern, a very serious concern, as we've heard on different aspects of film and, and film culture. <clears throat> Uh, but all, he was also very important in institution building uh, in, in Brazil, film-related institution building. I think Maite mentioned the film club that he established as part of the, 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 the Faculdade de Letras of Filosofia in Sao Paulo in, in 1940. I believe this was right before he became a student there, or right when he became a, a student at the University of Sao Paulo. Uh, they would screen films, but they would screen silent films. And this is what 11 years after the advent of sound. But at this time, Paolo Mili saw, saw film as an art form, and the most perfect example of this art form were, in fact, uh, in his view at the time, silent films. The film club, per se, didn't last very long because it ran into trouble with uh, the police, with, with censors. They were showing Soviet films or uh, silent films, but that would make the, the police felt make the Soviet Union look uh, look good in some way. But the thing I wanted to stress here is that this club would eventually evolve into the Cinemateca Brasileira in Sao Paulo. Uh, after it was closed, a few years after, it reopened in kind of another incarnation with the Museum of, of Modern Art in Sao Paulo, and then it eventually was transformed into the, the Cinemateca, uh, which Paulo Emili was intimately involved with uh, from the 1950s on. Uh, so he has a tremendous legacy in, in that sense, in the institutional sense of creating uh, the most important film archive uh, in Brazil. Uh, he was also very important in, in creating or helping to create what has become the longest running uh, festival of Brazilian cinema in Brazil, which the, 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 the Brasilia uh, Brazilian Film uh, Festival, which is now, you remember how many years? 37, 40 years? But it's still ongoing. And that grew out of an initiative called the, the Semana do Cinema Brasileiro, the Week of Brazilian Cinema uh, in Brasilia uh, in the 1960s. Uh, he was also instrumental, as, as, as they have pointed out, in creating two of the most important film programs in, in Brazilian universities. First at the University of Brasilia in the 1960s, uh, where he would bring in, he not only taught himself, but would bring in other major figures in, in film, not only on the critical side, like Jean-Claude Bernardet, uh, but also on the creative side. Nelson Pereira dos Santos, for example, taught in, in the film program. And he attracted students from all over. Uh, filmmaker Georgi Bodansky, for example, recalls in, in a number of places where he had gone to study with Paul Emilio going to uh, the university there. Uh, so he helped create the Cinemateca Brasileira. He helped create the Festival de the, the Brasilia Film Fest. He helped establish the film programs in, in Brasilia and USP. Uh, and this beyond his criticism per se, which Maite, has, has, Maite and Stephanie have described uh, very well. So I'm not going to go into to that area, but I, I think that one of the things that's very important is that he maintained, constantly maintained a very close dialogue 
with not only critics, but also with filmmakers themselves. And his relationship with the Cinema Novo filmmakers is exemplary <coughs> in this regard. I've already mentioned Nelson Pereira dos Santos, but you can, any of the Cinema Novo directors, and they were in dialogue with uh, Paulo Emile in critical dialogue. <coughs> he had students also from all over, uh, not only at the university, University uh, of Brazil or in Sao Paulo, but in courses he would give elsewhere, in seminars and symposium, lectures in the organization of film series. I remember shortly after I arrived in Sao Paulo at that time, he had organized a uh, series of, I believe, 40 Brazilian films. And then I tried to see uh, all of them, and they would be a film screening in the morning, followed by a discussion with, with students, always very open uh, to visitors and to, to different uh, perspectives. Uh, Maite and Stephanie have talked about the contextualization of film criticism. The fact that you can't look just at a film itself, but look at the broader kind of industrial, historical, economic, social context of, of film. But one thing that he's known for, and it's, I don't know if it's anecdotal or, or not, is that he would show the same film over and over and over again to students. Uh, they talk about him showing Hiroshima Mon Amour in Brasilia in the 1960s, like five days in a row, and his students would have to pay attention one day to say, just the story, the next day to the camera movement, the next day to editing, the next day to something else. And some critics and filmmakers have talked about the experience of, of, of sitting through and watching Vida Secas for multiple times during, during a course. Uh, and talk about the discussions they would have, what, what would be the point of their disagreements, for example. And I remember one thing that was a point of, of disagreement was that the a character from Graciliano Ramos's novel, Tomas Bolandero, is not present in the film. And so what does he mean? What does his absent mean in terms of, of the film? So looking at something you might not norm, one might not normally look at is, is, is his kind of modus operandi. I remember in my discussion with him about Makunaima, talking about the, 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 the swimming pool scene. I don't know if any of you recall that. It's a, it's a big cannibalist feijoada in a, in a huge swimming pool. And I remember him saying, instead of seeing that as a high point, what if you consider it as a low point of the film? What conclusions will that take you to? Where will that get you? So it's a question of kind of turning things on their head and trying to look at things from a... A, uh, a different angle. And he was very well known uh, for that. Another thing he's very well known for, that I think Maite alluded to but really didn't, didn't get into, is in the early 1970s, he made a radical break in terms of his view of film. And he dedicated himself exclusively to Brazilian cinema after that point. Uh, he is quoted as saying something along the lines of, the worst Brazilian film is better than the, first, the, the best foreign film. There's a lot of controversy as to whether he said that or not. I've always taken this to mean, uh, since I didn't hear him say it, to mean something on the order of that the worst Brazilian film says more about Brazilian yeah. society and culture than the best uh, foreign film, which is obviously true. But I was looking through notes I have and kind of did search, searches on my own computer, and I came up with an email by Carlos Roberto Rodriguez de Souza, who was one of his students, a longtime associate of the Cinemateca, 
and who nearly at this period of time in the early 1970s was almost a personal secretary to Paolo Emili. In fact, he was present when Paolo Emili became ill and, and, and ultimately died. And he says in this, this email uh, that I can forward to you if you, you mentioned, that he did in fact say that, that the, <laughs> that the worst Brazilian film is better than the best uh, American film. And he says he kind of probably said it as something you know, off the cuff and something he probably really didn't think through, he didn't, but he kept repeating it. And it drew a very heated response. Basically, he is, the idea that he was telling students not to see foreign films, to see only Brazilian films. And it drew a very heated response from, for example, Mauricio Segal, the son of Lazar Segal, the painter, uh, who did also a longtime member of the Communist Party, who you know, thought that was one of the most irresponsible statements that he had ever heard. So he wrote a very, very long response, really ripping into Paulo Emilio. Uh, but I think Paul Emili was trying to, to provoke, trying to get people to look at cultural production in Brazil and to kind of break away from what he saw as one of the major problems of Brazilian culture and, and that Stephanie uh, referred to in, in quotation she put. It's this kind of colonized perspective. The fact that Brazilians always looking, or some Brazilians of a certain class, I guess, always looking abroad as opposed to looking at their own cultural production. In fact, one of the dialectics, or one of the major dialectics of, of his article, Trajectory Under Development, is precisely, as he puts it, the dialectic between the colonizer and the colonized. And when you talk about nothing is foreign to us because everything is, that's exactly what it, it's talking about. But he did create a generation, or help form a generation, that uh, began to take Brazilian cinema much more seriously. And not only cinema novo, not only serious films, but also the chanchada, the comedies. Uh, if, if he were alive today, he would say, now don't ignore the global comedies. You know, you go see those and, and see what they have to say uh, as well. And so the idea that you have to, you're serious about it, you have to see all the Brazilian films. And that's something I always tried to take seriously when I was in Brazil. Uh, of course, it's much diff more difficult to do that when you're not in Brazil. Uh, and just one final point I'd like to make about the university is that a few years ago I did a kind of a survey trying to figure out what his impact might have been and just kind of a very quantitative look at uh, dissertations and theses directed. He himself didn't direct all that many, I think six or eight, something like that. But if you were to take only two of his students, one is Ismael Xavier, who is probably the foremost film critic in Brazil today. Uh, and Maria Rita Galvão, who published two books on, on cinema in Sao Paulo, one on the Veracruz Studios. Uh, this was about 10 years ago. They had directed about 15% of all of the theses and dissertations in Brazil that dealt with Brazilian cinema. And so if you could do kind of a social networking analysis, network analysis or something, I think you could come up with some kind of a quantitative measure kind of looking at this you know, genealogy, this legacy of, of Paulo Emilio, who is, is truly a major intellectual figure in Brazil. He is the one who really brought the cinema to the fore in terms of serious you know, intellectual study. He is in, in Brazilian cinema, what Antonio Cangido is in, in Brazilian literature. He's uh, a major figure, uh, very highly respected until today. You don't even need to use his last two names, just it's Paulo Emilio and Everybody knows anything about film, though, so you're talking about it. So I'll stop here.
Yeah. It's a pleasure being here and sharing some ideas about Polymedia with you all. I think it's a beautiful thing that we're discussing him today. Uh, he died in 1977. Uh, Randall just mentioned the Festival de Brasília, the Brasilia, Brazilian Film Festival, which takes place every September in Brazil. And uh, this is something that this is something that uh, it's a festival that 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 uh, he introduced in the late 60s. And the most beautiful thing about this festival is that it's now, I think it's coming close to its 50th uh, edition. And uh, everybody who uh, belongs to the Brazilian filmmaking scene uh, understands that going to that festival means getting some of what Paulo Emilio uh, meant or means uh, to Brazilian cinema. It's very much like going to the French Cinematheque and feeling the ghost of Henri Langlois. And uh, it says so much about the impact that someone leaves uh, in terms of ideas, in terms of energy, in terms of love. Um, and that is only one example the Brasilia Film Festival, which is known for how politicized it is and the discussions, how politicized the films tend to be when they're selected, when they're shown and discussed. And a lot of that comes from the spirit of, of Paulo Emilio. Um, today I'm a, I'm a filmmaker, known as a filmmaker, 15 years ago, I was more known or acknowledged as a film critic. And um, it's, uh, it's quite moving, in fact, when I got the email from Chris Stoltz uh, to take part in this panel. Um, of course, I, I thought, of course, Paul Emilio, um, I could maybe bring a few ideas but then when I sat down and got a little more serious about, you know, maybe revisiting a few books, and I, I was very fortunate to meet um, Sylvie Pierre, uh, who happens to be the first uh, female writer for Cahiers de Cinema. She just happened to be at, uh, at the Mar del Plata Film Festival last December, where I was screening Aquarius. And we sat down uh, for a cup of coffee, and uh, I had already received the invitation, and we talked a little bit about Paul Emilio. And um, suddenly it dawned on me that time has passed, and after 25 years, which is exactly a, a 25 years ago when I was finishing uh, university, that's when I first um, came to know or was introduced uh, in a more serious way to Paul Emilio. <clears throat> After these 25 years, I have come to realize that um, that patron saint in the 90s for this college student and who was an aspiring filmmaker and an aspiring film critic now had become, today in 2017, with everything that happened in my life and all the work that I have done, he had become some kind of... Um, uh, possible 
friend, somebody that I could really discuss and, and discuss some ideas about cinema, <clears throat> and whose struggle in Brazilian cinema has, has never really, um, is always very uh, contemporaneous, is, is always very factual in terms of what we are living today in 2017 and what he lived through in the 50s, in the 40s, in the 50s, and in the 60s. Um, I was uh, eight years old when he died. Uh, I, at that time, I was basically, I was actually very lucky because I, I was a child in the 70s. And um, in the 70s, um, the big commercial American films, in my mind, were very, very good or very interesting. And of course, as a Brazilian child, I was always going to see every six months the new Trapalhões films. Uh, they came out in the summer holidays and in the winter holidays in January and in July, just like clockwork, like a, like a big factory, just churning out these uh, Trapalhões films. And they, of course, they had um, a lot of, um, they were very much from the same uh, roots, the same origins of the, they are chanchadas basically from the 50s with Oscarito. When Star Wars came out, they did Os Trapalhões and the planet, and, and the planet, uh, and, the, and the planet wars. When the, Planet of the Apes came out. They did Os Trapalhões and the Planet of the Apes. And uh, that was basically my exposition uh, to Brazilian cinema. In the 80s, I, as a teenager, I went to live in England. My mother went to do her PhD in Essex University. And I finally came back and went to uh, college. And that's when me as an aspiring film critic and an aspiring filmmaker, I learned that in Brazil there were two patron saints. If you wanted to be a filmmaker, the patron saint would be Glauber Rocha. And if you thought about film criticism, the patron saint would be Paulo Emilio Salles Gomes. Um, I have to admit that on the filmmaking side, I was a little annoyed at the um, overpowering influence that Glauber Rocha had on, on very young wannabe filmmakers or aspiring filmmakers. Um, I remember the first film festival I ever went in my life with a, something that I did was in 1992. And uh, I must have seen maybe three or four short films from film schools and they were all very Glauberianos, let's say. Um, and I really believe that the whole, the influence that, uh, and the ideas and the aesthetic of Cinema Novo and Glauber Rocha, it really went as far as 2002 when City of God came out. I was never much of a fan of City of God, but I have to say that the reception that the film got uh, it was, it was a huge discussion based on the idea of the cosmetics of hunger. Actually, the aesthetics of hunger from the 1960s um, 
as written by Glaube, was turned into a discussion called The Cosmetics of Hunger, uh, Applied to Say of God. Um, all this to say that in running in a parallel line, um, a lot of the work that was that a young film critics were trying to to get done and trying to make um, had in what my mind was a much more open, free, and friendly, uh, let's say, standard in terms of ideas, which was the work and the legacy of Paulo Emilio. At the time, of course, um, I understood intellectually his, his importance. But now what I'm trying to say is that after 25 years, I understand, um, I understand his importance using more, I think, uh, my feelings and my feelings towards cinema. Um, his struggle for preservation, for example, is something that is, I mean, it couldn't be more current in terms of what we're living in Brazil now. Not only the, the new uh, policies um, related to the Cinemateca Brasileira, but also the, the new, the, it's a very modern uh, um, challenge, uh, which is digital um, images. What are we going to do in Brazilian cinema, which has become, in fact, more democratic, uh, tec technically speaking? But the amount of footage and the amount of the number of films being made digitally um, has become a problem on top of the, the original problem, which was just film preservation, uh, 35 millimeter film preservation. And the, the new developments which are um, connected to, related to uh, the whole idea of, of preservation in Brazil. Um, the, the very nature of the identity of Brazilian cinema, which is something that we, we are still discussing, just like Paulo Emilio was discussing back in the 50s and in the 60s, the presence of foreign films, the presence of the industry, um, the, a certain uh, business, uh, business model in terms of how to make uh, Brazilian film function or be seen, the discrepancy between auteur cinema and commercial cinema, and, and how today we can have a, quite a successful film in, in terms of international film festivals seen by 2,800 people in its entire run uh, in Brazilian cinemas. All these things make me think that Paul Emilio is very much, he's very much alive in, in, in a lot of the energy and a lot of the ideas that he left and that are still very much uh, discussed by people like us, um, um, not only in Brazil, but also, um, but also now with the, with the release of this book, with the publishing of this book, I just find it so beautiful that this is happening and that some of these ideas can circulate. Um, Randall just reminded me of the, of the famous um, uh, phrase that is attributed to him, 
uh, and now you came up with interesting information that he might have, in fact, said that. <clears throat> I'd just like to ask you, um, I think Andrea Bazin came up with something like this in the 50s, a very similar um, thought. And, and knowing that Paul Emilio um, had such a, such a rich interaction in, the, in France uh, in the 50s, do you think he might have brought that phrase uh, back with him? You know, I don't know if he did. It took a long time to kind of kick in, I guess. Mm. Because this, this phrase, if in fact he, he did say it, was from the early 1970s. Mm -hmm. you know, at that early time, he didn't pay all that much, and, and Stephanie might obviously know this much better than I do. He didn't pay much attention to Brazilian cinema other than, than a few things that, that, that he wrote. His focus was primarily on European. And then later on, you see the shift, absolutely. So did it come from Bazan? I, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Do either of you? Yeah, so from 1960, is when he starts focusing on Brazil. Yeah, so he publishes he publishes an essay where he says, um, that's it, I'm not going to be yeah. talking ever again about foreign Fun cinema. It's just Brazilian cinema from now on. Um, but it's probably also worth mentioning that he, that he could be incredibly critical of Brazilian films. And he could actually also, ironically, be very, very critical of the audience. Um, so he was a great defender of needing to understand the audience and the audience's relationship um, with film. But he could be very critical of that audience as well. So, yeah. Oh, sure. Mm. I, happen, <clears throat> I happened to be watching uh, last week uh, the Kent Jones documentary on Truffaut and uh, uh, Hitchcock. And there is one moment in the documentary where somebody says that André Bazin, he said uh, a very similar, uh, it's a very similar construction about French cinema and auteur cinema being superior to, uh, to the best commercial cinema, something like that. It just struck me that uh, it might have been, uh, Paul Emilio might have uh, adapted it for Brazilian reality. I just thought it was such a co coincidence since I, I was coming here. Well, it could be, but you know, the, the whole idea of this, this, this opposition between the commercial and the auteur cinema goes, goes way back, obviously. I, rem mm -hmm. I remember Manuel de Oliveira, the Portuguese director, wrote an article in 1931 called, uh, I don't remember the title, but it's uh, exactly along these lines, absolutely opposed to commercial cinema, so that Hollywood is destroying film as an art, just kind of this almost mechanical reproduction of formulas. Mm -hmm. And he stayed true to that opposition throughout his life. So, so whether it came from Bazan, I have no way. Yeah, they were close. He and Bazan corresponded. And mm -hmm. So yeah, maybe, yeah. Um, yeah, it's. Um, I, I just find it moving that we're here, and uh, um, I see, I see his fingerprints all over Brazilian cinema, uh, and it's quite, it's astounding, uh, the fact that he died in 1977, and that his mm -hmm. influence remains so yeah. amazingly strong. Clever, could I ask you before, I think we'll, we'll throw it open and if anyone has any questions for us, we could uh, ask some questions. But can I ask Clever one question before we do that, if that's okay? Um, so um, speaking then as a, as a film critic in your previous incarnation, 
Um, how, how do you understand <coughs> nowadays the relationship between film criticism and the movie business in Brazil? What's the relationship between filmmakers and film critics? Um, sometimes passionate, sometimes full of contempt for each other, just like everywhere else. <clears throat> but I find it, I find it disturbing that um, Brazil has a population of just over 200 million. Uh, we have one national magazine which could be um, loosely described as being a film magazine, but it's actually a, uh, a photo album of Hollywood uh, big releases. And I find it disturbing uh, that that is a reality. Of course, we have blogs and um, sites, you know, like Cinetica, um, but not many. And, and it's distressing to think that um, if you're a young cinephile, let's say if you're 15 or 16 like I once was, um, there is very little for you to, you know, to establish a communication, establish a connection, mm -hmm. and develop ideas related to cinema. Um, and you can't really pick from 15 or 23, you have to pick for, from maybe five or six. Um, on top of that, of course, the newspapers, um, like everywhere else, um, and it's the same thing here in the US, these, you know, the space for film criticism it has dramatically diminished in the last 15 years. And Rio, just to give you an idea, one of the most amazing cities in the world has only one newspaper uh, today. And uh, every Thursday, they come out with the bonequinho. You know what the bonequinho is, the little guy? The little guy is a very effective um, graphic design, or could I say that? Mm -hmm. It's a very effective little character. Um, and he, he, uh, he, he, there are five different bonequinhos, basically. Uh, he can be very happy uh, standing up and giving a standing ovation. He can be sitting down, applauding a film, quietly watching a film without any mm -hmm. specific reaction. Uh, sleeping on the seat, which is very bad, or just leaving the cinema. And that can mean death to a film. And the most interesting example was uh, in December, El, uh, Paul Verhoeven's film, which is, of course, a very, it's a film that has divided a, a lot of cinephiles and audience members. But it got a Bonakin leaving the cinema and it was out of cinemas in two weeks. Even with all the, the awards season thing uh, around the film. So it has a tremendous impact and, uh, and I believe uh, it's not really about ideas, it's just about the little guy. So it, it's quite depressing, really. Um, Brazil has an interesting film culture. Of course, we make films. Um, but, um, yeah, film criticism has seen better days. Mm -hmm.
even the bloggers? I think there's some great bloggers out there. There are some very interesting bloggers, but I wouldn't count more than 10 in the whole country. You might find uh, interesting people writing and, and they might not be, their work might not be you know, known. It's not known. And you might find something, you make, can make a discovery. Mm -hmm. But in terms of the, the usual suspects, you know, the people I like and the people I might, you know, look up, it's not no more than 10. I mean, I don't, I'm, the impression that I get um, is that, you know, we're talking about, you know, a particularly special case here with Paolo Emilio. I don't know that there, I can't think of another film critic who, who would have, who would have had that kind of reach and who would have been, you know, given that opportunity to, to reflect on Brazilian society and Brazilian culture to the extent that he was given. Um, I don't know that there, there are other, other cultural producers, but not necessarily a film critic. Yeah, I mean, I think the figure of the public intellectual has completely changed now. It's just, mm. you know, when Randall mentioned him as a public intellectual, it's kind of like, you know, I don't know of a new generation where there are in Brazil. You know, I think of, you know, you have people from, like Marilena Shawi, it's an older generation, um, maybe Ismail. And I, but I don't know if there is a kind of a new generation of public intellectuals. Um, in terms of, I mean, you mentioned the new kind of digital uh, technology, which means that film is changing, film venues are changing, film, filming is changing, the venues of receiving films are changing, um, which are not in public space anymore. And there's a movement, which I've only just, uh, Cinema de Gahajin, um which is completely changing that. And, um, so I don't, I mean, the public sphere is kind of no longer really exists in how it was manifested before. 
Um, I, 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 that doesn't answer really your question, but I think it's, you know, it's, Steph's right, these kind of figures, I don't think there's a new generation of, of, of people. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just, it's shifted, it's the bloggers, isn't it? So it's the Sakamoto's, it's, the, you know, it's the, you know, they are there, and they are, you I've know. I've seen, like, in Mexico, like, Carlos Yeah. Or even sexual woke, mm -hmm. right? In Argentina, who is both right critic, but then he goes on and he starts the Bafis. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so you have these figures. Um, mm. Not many, right? Yeah. Do you have a new Clint, generation in Argentina? Hmm? How do you see this question? Oh, I don't know. <coughs> I mean, I think with Amanda Zina, you have writers. Mm. I don't know if there's one main figure there that, that stands out beyond sexual woke. Quintino was a very, had a very strong, interesting role in the beginning. Brazil is interesting because um, as a market, it's it's bigger than Argentina, and, and, and I think we get more films from the, um, you know, from the international scene, which is, which is really not bad. I mean, we have access to a lot of the films that that do the the rounds uh, internationally. In a way, for example, I mean, like here in the U.S., it's it's quite limited in terms of the the access that that the American uh, cinephile has in terms of films uh, coming from foreign uh, countries. Um, but, I mean, it's very complex to discuss this, but when, when, when a film comes out and, and it makes noise, it, um, you know, I had a, a lot of coverage for Aquarius and Neighboring Sounds. Uh, um, a lot of people wrote about these films and sometimes it happens to films. But what happens really, there is a, there is a major, um, there is a, a kind of, um, people have been very aggressive towards ideas, uh, politically in Brazil and socially also. So the idea of a film critic and, or an intellectual uh, is usually received with, uh, um, in a very mean-spirited uh, way. So um, I think a, a lot of newspapers and magazines, they're also thinking about how popular they can be and, and, and they're cutting down on ideas. Mm. This is basically what is happening. Uh, um, film, uh, film reviews, and they have become um, more, uh, they are trying to make it more popular and sometimes even using uh, um, new slang that comes from the internet, and it, it just looks very strange. It looks like some transplant that doesn't work. Um, and um, yeah, maybe I'm getting old and I'm getting a bit frustrated with the way I see these things, because uh, when I started writing back in 1997, um, it was a completely different atmosphere in terms of how ideas were written into paper. Uh, and these days, uh, it's, it's, it's really quite a struggle for film critics. Um, and if you write in little blogs, I mean, it's basically the same thing that happens with the political discussion. Um, if you have your little blog, you can say anything you want, but if, if you write for a major publication from the big media, um, it just becomes more problematic. And, and, I, and I, I find that there is a mirror image between the political discussion and the whole 
aesthetic discussion in terms of, of the arts. Not sure I made myself clear, but it's very complex. one of the, 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 the driving uh, forces behind this act, this project is the argument that yes, we can look at Paolo Emilio and what he has to say about film and apply it elsewhere. So he has an important voice. Uh, the assumption tends to be um, that if you're publishing about film, you have to be publishing in English or French to be taken seriously and for anyone to think that it's, it's global. Um, so you I th I th yeah, I mean, I, I, I would say that that normally does tend to be the way. The reason why Paolo Amino isn't better known is because he didn't publish in English. Yeah. So he, what he wrote about Vigo may very well be known because he published yeah. it in French. Um, so, you know, and, and he, wrote about, he wrote about things other than Brazilian cinema. And even what he, what he was writing about Brazilian cinema has, you know, it has application. Um, I have a colleague who, who um, carries out research on the... Cine Panettoni, which is this um, Italian, this is your friend, <laughs> Alan O'Leary. Um, it's a, 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 a series of films that tend to come out at Christmas time, hence the Panettoni, um, in Italy, and they're incredibly popular. And he has used Paolo Emilio's theories on popular cinema um, to be able to read those films. So, you know, and, and the only reason why he's been able to do that is because I gave him a copy of something that, that Paolo Emilio had written because he got it from me. Um, so, the, you know, it's not just what he was saying about Orson Welles, it's not just what he wrote about Hitchcock that, that, that is interesting for people who aren't particularly specialist in Brazilian cinema or interested in Brazilian cinema. It's actually what he was writing about Brazilian cinema that's interesting too. So if you wanted to understand um, Brazilian film, for example, you probably would be reading a lot of the um, theorists who publish, you know, in the States, who publish, publish in the UK or publish in France, and taking that information and applying it to your reading of Brazilian film. It should work the other way around as well, so, but it doesn't. That tends to be how things are. So we wanted to try and break with this tradition. This is someone who, who has a, an important uh, message, and it's a global, you know, it's a, it's, it's a global relevance. It's not just relevant for Brazilian cinema. I think I think that's just how it's how the, uh, the the world of publishing works, isn't it? So if you wanted to um, publish in Argentina, um, you're probably going to go via the English language material rather than go get something straight from Brazil. It's this it's just how the it's how the world works. <laughs> I don't know what else to tell you. <laughs> but I just like to say one thing about your your initial question is uh, is is the market global or is it yeah. national? Uh, Hollywood believes that it's global, that there's only one market. Uh, Brazilian filmmakers would like to have greater access to their own market mm -hmm. in, in addition to foreign markets. But the market's occupied. The market is occupied by the American film industry. And Paula Emilia wrote an article in 1961, Colonial Situation, yeah. precisely about, about this. It's something that hasn't changed. 
So if you go to Sao Paulo today, you want to see a Brazilian cinema. There are some multiplexes that show Brazilian films, but they show one at 2 o'clock, another at 4, another at 6, another at 8. Who can go see the film at 2? Not anybody who works. It's kind of people like me who are hanging out. But there's this problem that has not been resolved. Uh, there are, you know, the technological changes. There are different outlets for film now than didn't exist before. But if you're talking about the theatrical market, it continues to be occupied. I can so, give and you. Kleber can probably give you many. Yeah, I can give you just one example. Uh, in the late '90s, uh, sometimes in in the you know talking to film critic friends in the bar, we we would say, "That's funny. We we never get to see Argentinian films. That's really strange. Why?" And then um, in 1999, uh, Argentina made a, they had a big international hit, which was also a big hit in Argentina, called uh, Nine Queens, uh, Nueve Reinas. And that film was actually acquired by Sony Pictures Classics, uh, the, of course, American uh, international distributor. And because they bought this Argentinian film, it went all the way up to New York City, and then it came down to all cities in Brazil, and we finally were able to see an Argentinian film in 1999. Argentinian films then went through a, an interesting moment, and then the Brazilian audience was shown how interesting these films could be, and then Brazilian distributors started uh, acquiring these films uh, directly from Argentinian producers. And today, uh, Argentinian films has become a subgenre in, in the Brazilian uh, art house market. So you have Brazilian films, you have French films, you have Argentinian films. And Argentinian films are some, you know, they're, they're uh, appreciated by the Brazilian um, bistro kind of audience which is this cinema, which is not really a multiplex, but it has, usually has a coffee place with a bistro. And the films are kind of, you know, with, they, they, they kind of feed, they feed a certain taste in cinema, which is not exactly the kind of thing that I like, but, you know, uh, films with Audrey Tattoo, French films, uh, which show Montmartre, and, uh, El, I'm sorry? Like Amélie Poulain, yes, things like that, yeah. and Argentinian films. She's had her hand up. One, one like us. <laughs> Um, in terms of Sao Paulo Emilio, I'm going to try and think of um, 
because on the one hand, I think he would like the democratization of, of um, film in, on the one hand, but he speaks so much about the experience of going and being in the movie theatre um, that I've, I don't think that, um, I think that would be kind of a, a negative because that's kind of lost. Um, he, sp he speaks a lot in, a, in loads of essays. It's about the experience of going and being part of a public audience. And, and that would, that's lost with Netflix and um, Amazon Prime or something. So I, I think it would be torn. Mm. Um, I think it was quite suspicious as well of, the, of, um, of, of big players within the industry as well. Because uh, when uh, Randall mentioned this, this question, the dialectical key um, to an awful lot of his thinking, and, and it's this idea of colonizer and colonized. Um, but he wasn't just suggesting that the colonised is Brazilian cinema and the coloniser is Hollywood. He very often identified the, co the coloniser as being within Brazil as well. So he was, he was actually quite good at spotting, he, he, picking up on, you know, who, who's, where is the sense of oppression coming from? So I, I can't help thinking he would probably read it as, mm -hmm. as that. Uh, so, so the overall thing is more about just democratising the film industry?